Well, good morning. I uh, might be a little dangerous to let you into things that go on in my mind, but this morning I, I arrived at the church and, and parked in the parking lot, and the sun was out, and so I reached in my back seat and I got my hat. I wore like this fedora kind of hat, and supposedly I wear it because of uh, I've had a lot of skin cancer in my family and myself, and so you know I should cover up. And I put this hat on, it's kind of, and, and I'm walking into the building, and this thought went through my mind: Are you trying to recapture your lost childhood? Because I have a memory when I was a little child that we would go to church on Sunday, and church was not important in my family. Like we never talked about it. There was nothing about God that was significant. We talked about, but we went to church. And when I was really young, back in the 1950s, I would wear this little hat, and my father would wear a hat, and when you got there, there was a place where you put your hats. They actually had designated a place for hats, and I thought, maybe I'm trying to recapture that, and I don't really care, you know, it doesn't matter, but it reminded me of what I experience a lot of times when we celebrate communion. It's our custom to celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, And I have a memory of childhood. It's not even a memory. It's like a feeling. My feeling was that that meal that we had on Sundays, even though we weren't a religious family, didn't talk about God or spiritual things very often, we experienced a Sunday afternoon meal that was special. We always ate in the dining room, not in the kitchen where we usually ate. There was um, candlesticks on the table and a tablecloth spread. My father sat and went in, my mother and the four of us kids around there. And I had to wear a coat and tie when I was a child on Sunday afternoon to dinner. Now, that all sounds very formal, and there was a certain air of formality to it. But apart from that, We were just four kids, and we did all the things that four kids do, all of the joking and sometimes getting sent to our room and all that sort of things that that happen in families. But when I think about the Lord's Supper, there's just this sense of that same feeling of, I don't know what to call it, but like heightened formality. There's, There's just a sense that I feel. I don't require anyone else to feel it at all. I don't care what people wear when they come to services of worship like this or anything like that. But we often not only have a table in front of us with the elements that Jesus gave us on the table, but we add a couple of elements to the service. We usually uh, say the Apostles' Creed together. We might use the Lord's Prayer or something. Elements that give to the service just a little sense of formality, even though we're not trying to make it a stuffy kind of experience. Now, I want you to keep that in mind. That's our setting this morning. The table's in front of us. The elements are there. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we think about this passage that was read to us, most of us aware, are aware that there are two balancing aspects of life that we all experience. One might be called the planned part of life, and the other would be called the spontaneous The planned parts of life are all those things that require advanced thought and preparation that we work on throughout the week. And um, the spontaneous are all of those natural, unprompted, unprepared things that go on. And you can think about a family. We experience this in family. Mom and dad, if they're going to have a family meal, and I hope that you do experience that, at least on a regular basis, where the whole family comes together, usually in the evening, Mom and dad know that the food is not going to miraculously appear on the table. There has to be a preparation of a menu for the meal. The 
buying of the things that are going to be used, their preparation, and placing them there for uh, the meal to occur. That is all the planned part. People are going to sit at certain places and they're going to take up their implements, uh, forks and knives, and they're going to eat. But then outside of that, when the family gathers together, there's all of these unplanned, spontaneous, natural, unexpected things that occur. Conversations are going to arise at the table that you could never prepare for. And particularly if you have little children, you realize that's true. You couldn't prepare for them. Events may be described at a table that um, are going to give an atmosphere to the meal that has been prepared. And the atmosphere is either going to be enjoyable or it might be gloomy, depending on what it is is shared. And, And that's true for the simple reason that planning and spontaneity are kind of built into life, and we experience that on many different levels. They're also built into personalities. Like most of you who know me know that I'm more on the planning side of life. I uh, look into the future. I prepare things carefully for events that I see and responsibilities that I see coming forward. I'm married to a woman who is the very embodiment of spontaneity. If you look in your dictionary under the word spontaneous, it will say, see Laura Llewellyn. (laughs) You know, she's a woman who can't put silverware in the drawer in the same way twice in a row. She can't fold clothes or hang them up the same way twice in a row. If I want to plan for vacation next summer, I say, honey, can we, can we talk about vacation? All of a sudden, she feels a little nauseated. She says, oh, you mind if I sit down while we do this? She just can't look that far into the future. And I delight in it. I, I'm so glad I'm married to such a person. Without her, my life would be pretty boring Without me, her life would be very chaotic, I can guarantee. (laughs) And those two impulses are a part of life, and people find themselves on different aspects of the spectrum there. They're true of personality, they're true of family, of event planning, of work, of vacation, all kinds of things that we do. And not surprisingly, those two aspects of life, the planning side and the spontaneity side, are part of the spiritual life as well. They're found in the Bible. And this passage really illustrates them plainly, and they they teach us some things about them. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to just illustrate those two sides of a spectrum and kind of lay it out for you in a spiritual sense. I want to use two different sayings that are found in the New Testament. One is a sentence, a word from the Apostle Paul that ends the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's a chapter where he talks about worship in the church and the things that go on and and how they should be conducted. And he ends with these words. It's kind of his final word on the subject of worship. He says, but all things should be done decently and in order. And what he's saying is whatever goes on in worship, it's not a free-for-all. There should be some preparation, some planning, and some order put to it. Let all things be done decently and in order. That's one side of the spectrum when it comes to the spiritual life. You do have to plan and think about things and prepare. There ought to be some kind of rules for life. On the other hand, I want to use a saying, a word of Jesus. You've probably heard this before, but let me put it in its context. This is something Jesus said when he was speaking to a famous Jewish rabbi named Nicodemus, a member of the uh, Senate or Sanhedrin of the Jewish people. And when he was speaking to him, he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, I don't understand what you're talking about. How can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus draws from a specific passage in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. 
It's a passage that would have been well known to Nicodemus, though we're pretty unfamiliar with it. Ezekiel 36 describes what it will be like when God brings the new covenant that they were looking forward to. And Jesus says, this birth, this new birth that you need to have from God, it needs to be two things, cleansing like water, as it says in Ezekiel 36, and empowering like wind. And when he speaks of the empowering part of this birth, this is what he says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, let me explain that. He uses the wind as an image of the Spirit, and the fact is, you don't see the wind. Wind is invisible. You only see the effect of wind. And the effect of wind, when it blows powerfully, can be destructive. It can blow down trees, topple mountains. It can be constructive. It can run a windmill that empowers a whole city. It's incredibly powerful. And Jesus says that's what the new birth is like in the life of a person who experiences it. You must be born again, he says to Nicodemus. You must experience this life from God placed in your soul by God if you were able to have experience a relationship with God. And the fact is the spirit, like the wind, you do not see he is invisible. You do not control his works. You only see their evidence in the life of a person as a person has moved from indifference or rebellion against God to submission to God and loving obedience. You don't prepare for it, he says. You don't control it. It is outside your control. You only experience it. And those are the two impulses, you might say, illustrated in sayings from the New Testament. Let everything be done decently and in order. On the other hand, the wind blows where it wishes. You don't control it. Now, those two aspects of life, as I said, are illustrated in this passage in a helpful way, I think. In this little passage, which our sister read to us a few minutes ago, the apostles, the 12 closest followers that have been appointed by Jesus, represented by John, come to Jesus, and they complained that they had come across a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he wasn't one of their number. He hadn't been authorized by Jesus to engage in this kind of ministry. So, John says, we tried to stop him. Now, obviously, this impulse falls on the side of the planning, let all things be done decently and in order, side of the spectrum. The apostles And before we feel they were wrong, let's take stock of the whole thing. We need to remember, the apostles had been commissioned by Jesus. This book underlines that very clearly. They had been specifically called to Jesus, appointed individually, and commissioned to serve him. In fact, they were given authority, according to the Gospels, to do three specific things. To preach the gospel, cast out demons, and heal diseases. This other person was not someone they recognized. He hadn't been authorized by Jesus, so they figured he was doing something illegitimate, and the Lord needed to know about it. Now, and I'm speaking as a person who is obviously on the planned side of the spectrum, there's nothing wrong with planning There's nothing wrong with preparation. There is, I remind you, a difference between exercising control and being controlling. Those are two different things. 
The second is related to the first, but we are told in many aspects of life that we need to exercise control, self-control, of course. Or when you bring a baby home after the child is born, you are in control of everything about that child. That's the way God designed it. That's your responsibility. The, the art of life is learning how to slowly release control and not become a controlling person. That's one of the balancing aspects of life. It's commanded by God. It's not evil in itself. For them to say this, we can at least understand why they said this. Now, before we go on to see how Jesus responded to them, let me just make a comment about casting out demons, because some of you might stumble over that. From the Bible's perspective, there are different factors at work in a person's life all of the time. We're aware of them today, and we think of these particular parts of factors that influence a person having problems in life. We might think of um, physical factors. The person has a virus, or they have some weakness in their system naturally because of lack of exercise or poor diet or whatever. There are physical factors. There are psychological factors, the way that they think and the way that they feel. There are social factors, how they relate to other people. And there are other factors we can think of as well. But the Bible adds one that we often leave out today, and that is there are spiritual factors in a person's experiences of life. And I don't mean spiritual in kind of a vague, ethereal sense, like a person might say, I'm very spiritual. Um, What I mean is there are very real agents, existing powers, spiritual forces, that on the positive side are called the elect angels, and on the negative side are called the evil angels or demons. These are spiritual powers. Now, today people speak of, and you might have even read this in different places, demon possession. What you should know is that the Bible does not technically, at least in the original way it was written, ever use a word that means possession. And that's not necessarily a wrong concept. The problem is when you think of possession, you think of it as an all or nothing. Either the demon controls everything that's going on or controls nothing. The Bible doesn't view it that way. The word that the Bible uses would be translated demonization. That means that evil spiritual forces exert various levels of influence in human life, and they become a contributor to many of the problems that people experience. In fact, it's difficult for me to think of very evil things that go on in our world, murder, child abuse, drug abuse, to think about those things without acknowledging that there must be involved in that some involvement of evil spiritual forces. After all, Jesus himself said Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And it would be natural that he would seek to subvert human thinking and human experience in certain ways. That isn't to deny that there's other factors, social, psychological, physical factors that are involved in a person's experience. It's simply to add to them another factor that is going to be found in various degrees. In a sense, it's the the question of how do you cut the pie up into how many pieces and how big are those pieces? If the spiritual aspect, the involvement of evil spiritual forces, is to a larger degree than spiritual activities like prayer and fasting, Jesus said, are necessary. They have to take a larger place in the process of seeking a cure. And that's what it's talking about here. Here was a person who was casting out demons using Jesus' name, and he wasn't one of the apostles' number. And so they said, we tried to keep him from doing this. And Jesus says, 
Do not stop him. Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Now, before we try to understand what Jesus means, it should be, we should take note of one thing that we can be confident he doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying here that Christianity is a free-for-all. Anyone can use his name and do anything that they want. He's not saying that. He's not saying any person who wants to do something good, heal a person, cast out demons, whatever, he's free to do that. I don't exert any control over that. That's not what he's saying. And the reason we know that is very clear. It's because later in the New Testament, there is kind of a parallel experience that the Apostle Paul has that sheds light on this. We're told that 25 years or so after this event in the Gospels, the Apostle Paul was traveling through southern Turkey, and he came to a city called Ephesus in western, what is now western Turkey. And there he came across a group of seven itinerant Jewish evangelists. That's what they're called in Acts chapter 19. These people were the seven sons of a person from the high priestly family named Sceva, the seven sons of Sceva. And what we read is that they heard Paul preaching and using Jesus' name. And so they attempted to cast out a demon saying this, I adjure you, which means I command you, I command you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of the man. And the demon said to them, well, I know who Jesus is, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And the man, empowered by the demon, overtakes these seven men and beats them to a pulp. Now, that tells us that these seven men, even the way they were using the name of Jesus, had no relation to Jesus. They had no connection to him. They were using his name as though it were a talisman, um, some sort of amulet or magic charm that you could use in combating evil. And Jesus' name is not used that way. It's not some kind of magic formula that anyone can use, kind of like the force in Star Wars, to accomplish what they want to. The key words that Jesus uses are, in my name, no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. And this tells us that whoever this man was that the apostles didn't recognize, he was not one of their number, but he had an awareness of who Jesus was, and he was committed to him. After all, the name of Jesus reveals its authentic power only in and through a person who is joined to Jesus by faith and lives in obedience to his will. So Jesus is essentially saying to these men, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. That's the nature of the spiritual life. Do not try to control the work of the Spirit. Now, let's add one more fact to this that that makes it actually just a touch more interesting. And that is that earlier in the same chapter, in chapter 9, there's a a little section, starts in verse 14, that has these words above it in my Bible. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And the story, as it's told, is that a father comes to the apostles and says, my boy is um, dreadfully demonized, and, and I would like you to cast him out. And they try to do it, and they fail. So the father goes to Jesus, and um, he, he casts out the demon. Now, apparently, the commission that Jesus gave the apostles did not carry with it some automatic 
power, Jesus' name again is not some kind of magic formula that even those commissioned by him can use as though it's going to carry with it um, a complete healing of every person to whom we speak. The planned and authorized aspect of life and the spiritual life is, most, is very important. I'm not saying that principle is wrong. Let all things be done decently in order. But the Christian life is not simply a matter of having all things decently and in order. There's something more that is required. That is the empowerment of the Spirit. No person is a pastor simply because he's given the name. There's something more that is required in order for that to happen. That's true of all levels of responsibility in the kingdom of God. There's reality, and then there's the outward form. It's not that the outward form is wrong, but the outward form by itself doesn't carry the power. And the whole point is that in our planning and our preparation in life, we have to always be aware that God may do something different. God may work in the situation in a way differently than we're expecting. That's the message here. As we pray and we plan and we prepare, we must be aware that we do not control the work of the Spirit. God may do something different. Now, when I was preparing this, I I thought what I really would like to say is, as we plan and we pray, we should always recognize that God may show up. And that sounded so good. Doesn't that sound good? God may show up. I like that phrase. The problem is, as I thought about it, that's not true. The showing up part of it, God often does through our prayer and our planning. I mean, many times what happens is we pray and we plan something, and then when we carry it out, God works through the things that we have done. And he shows himself to people, and they realize certain things, and they're moved in certain ways. But the fact is, our prayer and our planning doesn't cause God to show up. And there may be times when we do that very carefully and he doesn't show up. He shows up in ways that we don't expect. Our prayer and our planning is meant to be our opportunity to get ourselves in line with what God wants to do so that we can be a conduit through which he works. But he may work above, underneath, and beyond whatever our expectations and our planning is. You don't control the work of the Spirit. Your planning and preparation doesn't obligate him to act in certain ways, at every point you have to rely on him to work in and through you. And when you do that, Jesus says there's two things that happen. He just says them very briefly. The first is that you may find God working through unexpected people. And so he says in verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. The apostles thought that they were the ones who had been commissioned by Jesus and no one else was. And they exerted power in Jesus' name, and no one else was authorized to do that. And Jesus says to them, no, listen, the wind blows where it wishes. You don't control it. Learn that God can act even through people you don't expect in ways that you don't expect. You know, I love to take teams on ministry trips, like we had one go this last week to Houston. And I've often taken teams to Albania, although usually other people are leading those teams now and I'm doing other things. But this summer, Devin's going to take a team to Albania to work with students in Skoder, the city where we have a sister church. And when he does that, that team will prepare carefully. They'll prepare testimonies for people to give and um, topics to speak on and crafts and games. And, And they'll prepare these things for each day of the week. And it will be hard for the people to prepare that. Some may be asked to share 
shared their life story in a way that they've never done before, a setting they've never found themselves before. They have to prepare for that. But I always tell people when we go, now when we get there, you may find that everything's different than what you expected. You have to set aside some of the things you prepared. That's how it works. Last year, Mary Kay took five women to Kosovo and Albania, where we have two churches that we we work with there, and they were going to do women's retreats with the women of these two small churches, and they prepared very carefully for that. When they got to the first place they were going, Kosovo, tired from the journey, bewildered by the strangeness of the environment, the language and the customs, the first thing they were told uh, by the pastor's wife was, oh, by the way, we've invited some women to come to the meetings from outside the church, and they're all Muslims. Now, everything they had been prepared was under the assumption that they were going to be speaking to relatively new Christian people in this foreign country, and they realized we've got to change everything. I mean, some of what we were going to say isn't really appropriate to talk about your relationship with your husband, but what God did is he worked through that in a way that they didn't expect. And those women who came raised questions and took conversation in a direction that while it was surprising to them, it was different, it was very meaningful. And all I'm saying is as we pray and we prepare, we have to do it in the knowledge that God may do something different. And uh, we may find that unexpected people participate in ways that we didn't anticipate. The second thing he says is that we might find help coming from unexpected places. So verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Those who seek to see God at work will sometimes see God working through people in ways that weren't expected and in unexpected places. That's the message here. In our prayer and our preparation, our planning, as we go through life, we have to be aware that God is the one who is moving by his spirit and he may want to do something different. That's what Jesus was saying to the apostles. Now, how does this apply to us when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, when you think about the Lord's Supper, there are two sides to the spectrum. One is the side of people who love ritual. They love the planned side of life and putting that together. And um, others on the other side despise ritual and very afraid of it in a way. My wife and I often have conflict over that. Usually those people are on the spontaneous side, but I want to remind you of this. Um, Jesus did give us two ritual acts. They are acts that involve a physical element, water and baptism, or the bread and wine and communion. They, um, are, we are meant to use these two um, physical elements in a ritual way, a ceremonial way, in which certain words are accompanied by certain actions, like I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, or do this in remembrance of me. They are ritual acts. So let's think about the two sides of the spectrum. To those of us who are on the plan side, we have to remember this. Jesus only gave us two ritual actions. They are most profound in their meaning, and they are also very simple in their practice. This one requires only a table, which is spoken of in the New Testament, put in the midst of the worshipers, on which are set the bread and the cup. That's all that is required. What the elements are put in, whether they're made of metal, precious metal, paper, plastic, is of little consequence. 
I don't mean it has no importance, but it's not what we focus on. It's the elements themselves. We could add to it all kinds of ritual things. We could put a cross on the table, as in the place that I grew up, candles on either end of the table. And I'm not saying that all those things are terrible or bad, but what I'm saying is that when we add to it, we're trying to adorn, to make better in some way, the, the um, ritual that Jesus gave to us. And they're not required. Jesus gave us these things in a very simple way because they were meant to focus our hearts on him, not on other things. We're not, we're not meant to come and experience the aesthetic sense of the setting, although that may be part of the experience. That's not our focus. We're meant to bring our hearts to God. That's for those of us on the plan side of things. There are only two rituals, and they're exceedingly simple. On the other side, if you're more on the spontaneous side, I want you to remember this. Jesus did give us two ritual acts. They are accompanied by ceremonial words that are meant to be spoken and indications of exactly what elements are to be used and how they're to be applied. These practices are meant by their very nature, kind of like certain aspects of family dinner, they're meant to have a sameness that you recognize because of what goes on. This shouldn't be practiced if we understand the New Testament correctly, without an opportunity for the whole congregation, the whole family, to have a united focus on the table and a call to remember the original setting and the purpose that is served by doing this together. So when we come and we prepare to observe communion, we come with a planning and a preparation that fits such a ritual action given to us by God, but we must never forget that when we actually come to the meal, God is going to show up in ways that we may not expect. It, it may be that there are fresh and new ways that occur when people actually bring their hearts to God. For example, those who are present who are spiritually indifferent might be awakened as they see the people of God participating in this way, awakened to their real need. Um, believers who are backsliding into sin might be made aware of the reality of the danger of their spiritual state of distance from God. Worshippers whose lives, like most of us, are filled with a daily mundaneness of life might find themselves in the presence of God, swallowed up in a consciousness of God's unseen presence and power in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has communion, fellowship with his people through this ritual act. And that may happen in the midst of our planning and preparation and the simple laying out of the table. That is what we long for. That is what we come and we prepare, but then as we come into God's presence, we recognize that God may do things beyond our expectations. May God grant that that will be our experience this morning. Let's pray. Again, our Father, as we come before you, we thank you that you are the one who has gathered your family around this table. You have commanded us, and we even have prepared ourselves for it by setting a time and a place and putting out a table with a white cloth on it and setting out the elements that you gave to us. It is our prayer that these things would be for us effective signs of your presence, but that you would speak to our hearts as individuals, as married couples, as families, as a church. Speak to our hearts in the way that we need to draw us to yourself.
that you would move us to be your willing followers. And we pray this with thanksgiving in Jesus' name.